Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 141. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, Malaise. Now that's an opener sure to get people on the edge of their seats. I'm talking about that vague sense of mental or moral ill-being. You ever feel that way? Like you're on a big, blandly colored hamster wheel every day. Round and round. What am I even looking for? Guess I'll go eat some boring pellet food and take a crap in the cardboard paper towel tunnel. Maybe you feel that way today. Although I hope the Drabblecast gives you at least 20 minutes or so of escapism from it. Binks Bowling from Walker Percy's fantastic book, The Moviegoer, said, What is the nature of the search? Really, it's very simple, at least for a fellow like me. So simple that it's often overlooked. The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. Binks daydreams constantly in the book. He has trouble engaging in lasting relationships and finds more meaning and immediacy in movies and books than his own routine life. The novel follows Binks as he embarks on an undefined search wandering around New Orleans, Chicago, and the Gulf Coast, reflecting philosophically on small episodes and interactions. He's constantly challenged to define himself in relation to friends, family, lovers, and career, despite his urge to remain vague and open to possibility. What is the nature of our search? Why do we wander? Is it a quest for adventure, a pilgrimage for a great moral significance? Or are you just souping up your hamster wheel a little bit? That's this week's show, which leads us to our Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is The Tower by Brian J. Jacob. Brian lives in San Francisco. He says he writes in order to keep the voices both in his head and to keep them sane. The tower thrust up out of the ground as if vomited from the earth, its spire stabbing the sky, a warning to all for miles around. I approached with great apprehension, the tower draining the world around it of happiness. I gained entrance easily. The guards of the tower, languid in their stance, watched with dull eyes and duller expressions, both products and victims of the tower. I ascended to the top of the tower, slipped through the doors, looked around warily, and sat down at my desk. I too was a victim, and it was Monday, after all. Our feature story this week is called On the Destruction of Copenhagen by the War Machines of the Merfolk by Peter M. Ball. Peter is a writer from Brisbane, Australia, whose work has previously appeared in Fantasy Magazine, Strange Horizons, and Apex Magazine. His unicorn noir novella, Horn, is available now from 12th Planet Press, and he can be found online at www.petermball.com. This story first appeared in Strange Horizons back in July. So without further ado, On the Destruction of Copenhagen by the War Machines of the Merfolk, by Peter M. Ball. One. 
When it starts, we're in a hotel room, the two of us curled up on a double bed. It's a two-star kind of place, cracks in the walls, curtains covered in faded daisies, the clinging smell of camphor attaching itself after the first few minutes of your stay. The television stutters as we flick through the channels, colors bleeding together and rendering the devastation of fuzzy blue or green. Still, we see it happen. The great machines of the merfolk coming up over the shore, rampaging through the city with devastating effect. We watch a robotic mermaid hammer her fist into an apartment block, the dust cloud from the explosion engulfing the nearby camera. It's quick, sudden, a surprise that's ruined by the later repetition of the footage. We breathe in, and all we can smell are mothballs. It's almost a disappointment. We're not in Copenhagen, but it's possible my sister is. She was there when last I talked to her, and I don't know when she was leaving. My knowledge of her trip consists entirely of reports on the quality of her breakfast. I don't know when she was planning on leaving the city, but I know Copenhagen makes excellent waffles and cream. This knowledge, once gathered, proves to be useless. I explain all this to the girl beside me, and she looks up, wide-eyed. She asks if this means we'll be going home early, just in case. I think about it, and then, no, I tell her. No, of course not. There's nothing I can do at home that I can't do here. This is selfish, I know, but I console myself with the knowledge that my sister doesn't stay places for longer than a few days. She was going to Iceland next, and there's a good chance she's moved on. I say as much when pressed. Iceland, I say. Odds are she's in Iceland. Nothing to worry about unless we hear otherwise. The girl beside me asks, why Iceland? I tell her, I have no idea. My sister's travels are guided by a logic she doesn't share with others. Two. I won't leave you in suspense. That would be unfair. My sister didn't make it to Iceland. Her flight was canceled on account of the attack. No one tells us this. My sister doesn't call. In the absence of news, my mother panics. She leaves worried messages on my cell phone. I don't panic. I place my trust in my sister's ability to take care of herself, even in the face of vast robotic war machines and canceled flights. My sister carries trouble with her like luggage, always ready to be unpacked. It's a habit that's given her plenty of experience surviving the unexpected. Three. My date is only 22. I'm almost 35. We don't tell people that we're going out. Her name is Haley, though this is probably a lie. She thinks my name is Dean, though she is unsure of whether this is a Christian name, a surname, or a nom de plume. The best thing about Haley, she smells like cotton candy. Lying in bed with her, smelling her hair, is frequently better than our stilted attempts to have sex. Haley has a cobra tattooed on her left arm in green ink, and she has a blue mermaid tattoo on her right thigh. She sent me photographs of both when we were flirting online, but the cobra seems more threatening when seen in real life. 
Haley met me at the hotel, wearing cut-off jeans and a tank top, all her ink on display for the whole world to see. I booked the hotel room while she watched me through the glass door. We booked in as Mr. and Miss Dean. In theory, we are both engineers. This is the occupation both of us offered when the question was raised online. We bonded over this, our mutual interest in machines. It greased the early days of our relationship admirably. We are liars, and we assume as much. This is a basic precaution in the age of the internet. Yet, both of us enjoy the game more than we let on. 4. My parents text me, pinging my cell every couple of minutes. Text messages are a bad way to communicate in an emergency. It would seem comical if I wasn't watching the news, even though my parents aren't known for their sense of whimsy. I read their messages to Haley during the lull in the news reports. Have you heard from your sister? There's a giant robot mermaid crawling through Copenhagen. It's fighting its way to the Christiansborg Palace. Do you, do you remember the name of your sister's hotel? Do you remember the name of your sister's airline? Have you heard from her since this started? My God, did you see the damage that tale caused? Have you heard from your sister? Has she tried to give you a call? Why aren't you answering your phone? Five. We don't hear from my sister for three days. Then we do. She leaves a message on my phone. Not dead. Not in Iceland. Everything okay. Give you a call when I get home. I forward this message to my mother and scan the limited breakfast options on the hotel's room service menu. Haley and I order raisin toast that comes with not enough butter. Haley tells me this is her favorite breakfast ever. The only thing she can eat at the start of the day. 6. It emerges that no one knows why the attack took place. The merfolk's statement on the matter is a collection of high-pitched whale songs that remain difficult to decipher, so people develop their own theories to make sense of the destruction. <laughs> My, uh... Favorite suggests that, perhaps in retrospect, uh, the statue of the Little Mermaid in Copenhagen Harbor uh, may have been something of a mistake, that the merfolk may have taken it for some kind of taunt. <laughs> My sister visited that statue three times in the past. Each time, she says, regardless of the season or clothing she's wearing, it's the coldest place she's ever been. And she's been to many cold places. She's seen both the Arctic and Antarctic circles. She is not sorry to hear that the statue was torn down in the wake of the attack. 7. It should be noted that visiting Iceland is still on my sister's to-do list, thanks to this horrible tragedy. 8. There are some people, my friends among them, who will believe the destruction of Copenhagen is an urban myth. Others will believe it's a cover-up for something both more mundane and infinitely more sinister. They'll blame the Americans. America is easy to blame in moments like this. My sister suffered three injuries during the attack, though all of them were minor. The worst was a sprained right ankle, which ballooned up and forced her to limp along on crutches for a week before it healed. She sent me photographs of her injuries, her ankle dark and swollen like she's hiding a storm cloud beneath her skin. 
The photographs of my sister's ankle will do little to convince those who doubt the attack ever truly happened. They'll tell me such injuries could have happened to anyone at any time, and I can't prove them wrong. Nine. There were five robots in Copenhagen. I told Haley they were simultaneously works of innovative engineering and one of the poorest designs I'd ever seen. She snuggled close and asked me to explain. I closed my eyes and breathed in the smell of her hair. The genius of the robots was in their scale. 200 feet tall, strong enough to smash a building into rubble. The merfolk did this using parts scavenged from sunken ships, each robot a patchwork construct made from metal and waterlogged wood. That the robots worked at all is a marvel, requiring foresight and ingenuity that few human engineers could match. The flaws of the robots lay in their scales. The use of the merfolk as the base form, rather than a creature adapted for movement on land. Each war machine was covered in a scaled shell of metal that leaked water every time the robot moved, forcing them to return to the ocean at periodic intervals where they would sink beneath the surface as a flurry of air bubbles boiled the water. This flaw ensured the rampage was limited to a small section of the Copenhagen shoreline. Haley was impressed by my observation. Told her I never wanted to be smart. I wanted to be free to travel the world on a whim just like my sister. 10. The games we play to pass the time. Haley is an Italian maid and I'm the horny tourist she walks in on. She's a stunning French philosophy student and I'm the horny waiter at her favorite cafe. She's a terrified Danish film star and I'm the rampaging robot that picks her up and fights off the Air Force while clinging to the side of Copenhagen's tallest tower. The news reports tell us that the rampage is over, that the robots ranged too far from the shore, leaving the pilots gasping for air inside the dormant constructs. 11. They announce the final death toll. It's lower than either of us expected. We pack up and go home the next day. The war with the merfolk is over. 12. The next time I see Haley, she'll be older, wiser, less prone to dating men that she meets on the internet. Her hair will smell like something other than cotton candy. I'll be reaching for cocoa puffs, and she'll be reaching for name-brand muesli. I'll be fatter and growing a beard, and I'll stop myself from calling out her name when I see her standing next to a friend who may or may not know of Haley's double life as Haley the Engineer. I will feel a sudden surge of jealousy. Haley's friend will know if her name isn't really Haley, but I will never know. My arm will falter. I will smile instead. Haley will smile back. She will excuse herself and hurry down the aisle so she can kiss me on the cheek. She will ask after my sister. I'll tell her that my sister is fine, though she's currently stuck in Korea, paying off an impressive bar tab generated during a wild night at an underground casino. We'll laugh at that. We will not mention our time together. Haley will excuse herself. She will go back and start talking to her friend, making some comment that explains who I am without mentioning the fact that we once dated. The merfolk will have gone underground, 
censored by the global community for their actions in Denmark. The oceans will be deemed unsafe. We will worry about ships lost at sea. Each new incident will become global news. We'll lose faith in our Navy. Haley will rejoin her friend. She will choose a more expensive brand of muesli and place it in her shopping cart. I will watch the two of them go, walking away from me, disappearing around the corner of the aisle. I will admire the curve of Haley's back. I will wonder if Haley was ever her real name. I will close my eyes and wish. I will wish that we could sleep together just one more time. I will wish that we were back in the hotel room, that the merfolk invasion could start again. Haley will be gone. I will miss her. I'll wish she still smelt like cotton candy, and I'll breathe in the sugar-sweet smell of the cocoa puffs and pretend that I'm smelling her for a little while longer. Later, I will remember that my sister still hasn't made it to Iceland. It's the one place I can still go that she's never been. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Gosh, you know, if I hear one more thing about that dumb couple crashing the White House dinner uninvited, or if I hear the name Tiger Woods in a sentence not related to golf, I swear I'm going to join forces with the merfolk in preparation for the next big strike. Our society is addicted to sensationalism, a constant stream of scandals and Michael Bay explosions. We're drenched in so many scandals and fireworks that even they get boring and predictable. It's one downfall of a prominent person after another, making headlines in the news for something ridiculous. A building blows up, and we're pretty sure terrorists did it, but boy is it interesting if maybe the government did it. Give it time, people. Mermaid doom machines are not that far off in the news of our future. Especially if we keep sending all of our troops to Afghanistan when the real threat is clearly buried underwater. WMDs. Weapons of merfolk destruction. I think this story also says some cool things about the gap that the internet, television news, and digital media creates between human beings and events. You've got a sister seemingly addicted to traveling, adventure, seeing the entire world with her own two eyes, and you've got a protagonist with an awkward internet fling whose heart rate doesn't even pick up when he sees war machines rising out of the ocean. Now that's what I call malaise. I'd hate to be a pudding salesman in this future. I think we've maxed the extreme on that already. So let's do story feedback. A couple weeks ago, we ran a doubleheader special on Igor Tepper with the stories Quantum P.I. and The Last Outlaw. All in all, people seemed to like the stories, but nobody went particularly nuts. M.A. Kelly said, both stories were pretty darn good. Quantum P.I. was like Sam Spade meets Miss Cleo, a sort of futuristic flim-flam man. Imagine using science to score cash. My favorite was The Last Outlaw. I love the whole idea of sci-fi with a western edge. It totally worked for me. Kept expecting John Wayne to step out of a spaceship and, well, John Wayne the whole place. Sam Android is the toughest man this side of the event horizon next to me. Dougal Strange said, Overall, this episode left me lukewarm. Quantum P.I. made me kind of feel like I was in math class. The last outlaw seemed okay, but I was still trying to shake off the nightmares of my 11th grade calculus teacher, and I couldn't really enjoy it. Yeah, so even if one of the stories we run brings up traumatic, repressed math teacher memories, we'd love to hear from you. 
Join our discussion forums and say hello. We're a friendly lot. And speaking of friendly folks, our kick-ass donor of the week is... Vinny Bove. Vinny's a full-time graphic designer for his church in New York City. AKA, he has to do a lot more marketing than your typical little church bulletin. He's a singer and once upon a time actor. Had to put that in the shelf when the full-time gig came along. He's also an aspiring children's book creator. He says he'd love to submit fiction to us one day. Well, Vinny, typically our kids' stories end up having the kids eaten by wild animals, kidnapped by shadow people, or using their powerful telepathic powers to control zombies. If that's what you mean by children's book, then I think you're good to go. We appreciate the support from folks like Vinny. This show can get a little expensive here now and then. Not to mention, I bust my balls for it. So any support you can give can be given from the donation option buttons off of our main page, Drabblecast.org. Go there now and give us lots of money. 100-character Twitfix story winner this week is the Twitfix juggernaut bitch himself. Algernon Sidney is dead. Here goes. Pam remembered her mom's wedding toast. May all of your problems be little ones. Pam stared at her octuplets and wept. Beautiful stuff. Follow us on Twitter. You can keep up with these. Write one yourself and post it in our forums. That's where we pull the weekly winner from. Okay, so I'm about to run a promo for a really awesome podcast novel. I want everyone to give me your word of honor you'll try out. And not just because I play one of the main characters. This thing has Parsec Awards smeared all over it, people. Puddling and congealing on the dirty tiles beneath it. Watch your step, fool. Really, though, I've read this thing. It's really engaging. It's got great characters, a complex world. Normally, it's hard for me to get into fantasy. It's like, ooh, there's an asp. Uh, the thief deals it two damage. Now he uh, gets a freaking shadow gauntlet or something. Oh, God. Cast a fire three spell. Uh, paladin. The minute I read the word halfling in a book, that puppy's pages instantaneously become paper towels, absorbently taking care of all that goopy, gelatinous parsec. Episode one of this bad boy pops out next week. Give it a shot. I really do think you'll like it. Abby is a fantastic writer. We've had several of her pieces on the show before, and a staggering amount of work has gone into this. Among the querulous island kingdoms of Wefravain, the only unifying power is religion, a wyvern cult ruled by an eccentric high priestess. My name is Morcella. You have permission to use it. The system is under attack by a gang of pirates called the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, who prey on temple treasure ships. Skytown is just an idea, Captain. If that's true, then it's an idea you fought hard and lost. The temple police charged with eradicating this menace keep disappearing. Enter Gerard. Gerard Holivar. Your Highness. A young prince, exiled from his small island kingdom for rashly marrying the court minstrel. My captain of police has been missing for a red month. It is time to consider him dead, and I have decided that you will replace him. Gerard is smart, honorable, and a little naive. 
To break the pirate ring, he must cooperate with a wily, amoral colleague who has already tried to kill him twice. Everyone's wrong. Everyone cheats. Everyone will sell you for the right price. There are no real choices. That's the world, according to Silvio Lemire. As Gerard struggles to protect his talented wife, You are good. Good things cannot be evil. Obey his seductive employer. I'm sorry to have startled you, Captain. No, you're not. You're enjoying it. And forge a complicated friendship with his dangerous co-worker. I'm not your friend, Holivar. I've given you my one and only piece of good advice. Go home. He becomes increasingly aware that the pirates have a legitimate quarrel with the wyverns. Dark secrets lurk in the temple dungeons, and solving them will cost Gerard far more than his honor. The Guild of the Cowry Catchers is an illustrated podcast, featuring voices from around the potosphere. Learn more and view illustrations at cowrycatchers.com. That's cowry like the seashell, C-O-W-R-Y, catchers like catch me if you can, dot com. I'm the author, Abigail Hilton, and you may have listened to my first series, The Prophet of Panamandora. Cowrie Catchers is a darker, grittier story. Subscribe and experience a Panamandora you've never heard before. The Grishnards think they are the dominant species on Wefravane. They are wrong. One need only look in the temple on every island to find the true dominant species. Go to cowrycatchers.com to subscribe. That's C-O-W-R-Y-C-A-T-C-H-E-R-S.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. I get to play a warped, sly, pissed-off, hard-ass, half-kinda-fox, half-kinda-gay character. It was pretty fun. And how about this week's episode artwork, huh? Badass, in my opinion. Brent Holmes, ladies and gentlemen. Brent's a graphic designer in Las Vegas, Nevada that moonlights as a lord of space. You can check out all his adventures, both spacey and creative, at his incredibly irregularly updated Flickr page. Flickr.com forward slash photos forward slash fartlord. You'll find it in our show notes. So that's our show. Remember, the Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you can share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes if you'd like, or Podcast Alley. Spread the good news, and such forth, hence wise. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that you're a stunning French philosophy student, and we're the horny waiter at your favorite cafe.